This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Boris Fishman, author of the novel A Replacement Life. He is also a journalist, and his work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, Harper's, and Vogue, among others. His novel, A Replacement Life, is about a Russian immigrant journalist who ends up forging documents for elders in his community who fraudulently claimed they were owed restitution from the German government for being Holocaust victims. Fishman's own grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. We began the interview talking about his childhood in Minsk and subsequent move to the United States. Well, I was born in uh, what is now Belarus, uh, in the capital Minsk. I was the reason my family decided to leave, because even though it was no fun to be a Jew in the Soviet Union, they were making their way, and they were not refusenik types, um, they were get-along types, and so it wasn't until I was born that they really got that fire to get out. Why? Because they didn't want me to serve in the Red Army, which I would have had to because it was mandatory. And being a Jew in the, in the Soviet Army, you're liable to get more hurt from your fellow soldiers than you are from any kind of enemy. So they wanted to save me that. And so right when I was born in 79, we applied to leave. Um, and of course, terrible things happen when you apply to leave. You're sort of uh, declare, you're declared a traitor and excommunicated from your job and in all sorts of public settings. It's, you become a persona non grata, which is a status relieved only by actually getting to leave. But what happened with us was what happened in December 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, and then the Americans retaliated by boycotting the Summer Olympics in Moscow in 1980, and the Soviet Union retaliated back by saying, okay, well, we won't give you our Jews, and so we were stuck for another uh, eight years. This was quite painful for them, but it was very seminal for me, because if I had left at, at, less than one, at less than one year, we wouldn't be talking about this novel. I would be a completely different person. As it was, I got to be shaped by, for nine years, by this very particular culture. Um, we finally got out in 88. Uh, we settled in South Brooklyn, just like everyone else who comes to America from that part of the world. Um, my parents tell me that in immigrating to America, um, you had to be sponsored by sort of some kind of organization in the city you were going to. And in a lot of the cities around America, Chicago, San Francisco, where we actually had friends and relatives, the sponsoring organizations charged uh, for um, sort of the sponsorship. And it was only in New York that they didn't. It was essentially free to settle in New York, which is the only reason that we ended up here. When you came to America, you lived with your parents and grandparents. Did that experience of living so close as a family and being in a foreign country contribute to why you became a writer? I do, I do. I, I think it's related to that because the best that I can trace it to is like two kinds of experience that I had as a young person. One of them was, so it won't come as news to you that sort of Soviet culture, psychologically speaking, very oblique. Um, sort of publicly, people were careful about what they said for obvious reasons, you know, saying the wrong thing could get you all kinds of trouble you didn't want to deal with. But that was also the case in the home. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, there's this notion, this what, sort of well-known idea of Russian homes, like the home, the kitchen is where you were candid with, with your people. And that's very true. Um, at the same time, I had this, my family is a very close-knit, loving, uh, 
family in, in sort of the finest tradition of Eastern European Jewish families, which also means um, there's this cult of love um, that prohibits um, any, any direct expression of need. Um, you know, if there's one piece of food left on the plate, it must be left for the child, regardless of who wants what. Regardless of the fact that the child doesn't want the last piece, no one's entitled to touch it. This kind of cult of self-abnegation, you, you demonstrate your love by denying yourself things. The problem is that need uh, doesn't go away just because you ban it. It just comes out in uh, less obvious ways. And so I grew up with these four adults that were very loving and very generous and gave me a lot. But they wanted a lot back, even though they would never own up, own up to it. So I spent a lot of my young years reading between the lines and understanding what was meant, even when what was being said was somewhat different, which is, of course, essential to good writing. If you look at the dialogue in my novel, uh, I've actually had some people say to me that, I've had, that, that I had to go through the dialogue more than once because people speak so unlinearly. They don't respond to what, what, what was said to them. They respond to what they wanted to hear or what they want to speak about. And so I think that comes directly out of that experience. Like I learned to observe as the child and grandchild of my parents and grandparents. But the flip side of that is when I was four and six and eight and we were at the dinner table and I had a question or a statement or an observation and I spoke up, no one ever shut me down. I, I grew up with this idea that the things I wanted to say deserved to be said, which I think is a blessing that is quite rare for kids sometimes. Kids get shut down a lot in one way or another. Um, and I never was. Four adults got quiet so that I could speak up. And so observation and expression or expressiveness, those are sort of two qualities that are indispensable to my writing, and I think they grew out of that experience. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Boris Fishman, author of the novel A Replacement Life. There are echoes of your life in your novel, A Replacement Life. The main character is a journalist. He came from Russia. Then he ends up forging documents for the to give to the German government for people who've come to him who have fraudulently said that they were Holocaust victims. So I'm just wondering, how do you start from maybe your real life and create fiction like this? And what inspired you to write this story? Absolutely true that Slava and I were both born in the Soviet Union, came to America at similar ages, settled in a similar place. But for example, I mean, this is a liberation of fiction. Slava uh, runs off from his family. You know, Slava lives in South Brooklyn with his family. He's sort of embarrassed by all this immigrant scraping and hustling that goes on down there. He wants to, so to speak, cleanse himself of all that and start a new page in, in this family's history. And so he runs off to Manhattan and sort of sits waiting for the Americanness to take hold, which is obviously not the way that it happens. But it is a kind of at least fantasy of liberation that he gets to enact that I never did. Um, I always felt too beholden to my family to hurt them that way. And so in that sense, we're not one-to-one. And that's sort of the way the novel works in terms of combining um, autobiographical context and not. Um, someone like the grandfather character, who's a real shyster and wheeler and dealer, uh, temperamentally, um, he takes a lot from my grandfather, about whom I'll tell you in a second. But uh, all the things he says in the novel are invented. Uh, my grandfather didn't ask me to forge Holocaust restitution claims. Um, there's another character, a kind of surrogate grandfather figure named Israel, who's invented out of whole cloth 
um, out of out of Slava's two love interests, the 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 American girl Ariana and the Russian girl Vera. Uh, Ariana is based on someone who uh, I knew in life. Um, Vera invented out of nothing, and so they just sort of blend seamlessly. I mean, there there are sentences that begin factually, but and um, fictionally, so to speak. Um, and um, <clears throat> I actually decided to make that experience uh, a, a formal part of the novel because Slava, in forging some of these claims, finds that he's unable to get going without some kernel of fact to get him started. But once he has that, he feels entitled to riff and depart, but he needs that to get going. So that's very much a... There's a kind of, it's, it's an old-fashioned traditional realist novel, but it does have all these meta moments where the things, because Slava and I were learning how to write a narrative, a persuasive narrative, sort of at the same time. And we would kind of teach each other and pass notes along at homeroom, you know, um, telling each other what we, um, uh, what we might do to make our stories more persuasive. So, so it's that's basically the, the, the way it all blends in. But to answer the other question, which was the inspiration, my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. Um, as you might know, um, you were not eligible to apply for restitution if you lived behind the Iron Curtain. The agreements did not cover those survivors because it was felt that their governments would poach the money where, where, where any ever sent, which was probably a reasonable thing to be concerned about. So she didn't become eligible to apply until she came to America. And her paperwork was given to me, even though I was all of 15 or 16, because I had the best English in the family. And in filling it out, I was really struck by how low the burden of proof was. Um, it, no documentation was requested, really. I, was, I remember it saying, if you have some, please send it. If you don't, no problem. For obvious reasons, you didn't get a confirmation voucher when you went into the Minsk ghetto, which, is, which was her experience for two years during the war. Um, and I just thought to myself, it essentially turned a matter of history into a matter of storytelling. If you could tell a good story, you were in. And it just got my imagination going because I knew it was just a matter of time before somebody had a field day with these applications. I mean, they were just, they were ripe for abuse and a, and, and a certain kind of mentality wouldn't dare, which is to say the American one. But I just knew that someone from my community would absolutely um, do something like this. Um, and the reason I say that is because in order to survive in the Soviet Union, you had to resort. You didn't have to. Um, <clears throat> some people just lived in privation. But if you wanted a little bit more, which is to say just enough, um, you, you essentially had to resort to crime in order to make things right. I'll give you an example. My, my, you know, they had a, an undeclared quota for Jews in universities. Um, so you basically say five Jews were admitted for every thousand students in, in Belarus State, which was the premier university in Belarus. And my mother was one of them. Why? Because my grandfather bribed the necessary person. But then, on her own steam, my mother ended up valedictorian. But it's shameful for this institution to, uh, to, to award that to uh, a Jew because, well, it doesn't look good. You know, we admit five out of a thousand, one of them is going to be valedictorian, not good. So even though her grades are at the top, we're going to demote her to salutatory. Um, and my grandfather had to bribe the Minister of Education for Belarus in order for the right thing to happen and for her to be re-promoted back to the valedictorian thought that she had earned through her own efforts. So as you see, it's like there's no way to restore justice without crime. It was that kind of society. Um, and so when you're 50 and 60 and 70 years old and you come to a new place, it's very hard to unlearn those habits. And so I just knew that this was ripe for abuse. And in fact, I, I was right. Um, in 
2000, I had written a draft of the novel by this point, but in 2010, there was this big announcement um, uh, about the fact that uh, the FBI had arrested a whole bunch of people down in South Brooklyn for doing exactly what I described in the novel. They'd been doing it since the 90s, but it wasn't exposed until 2010. I'm curious about the role that writing played in your main character, Slava's life. He was a journalist, but he was a frustrated one because all his ideas were rejected by his editors. And then when he started writing these false testimonies, he found this satisfaction in writing them, as well as became closer to his grandmother, whose story this really was. I'm wondering if that mimicked any of your own experiences as a writer and the relationship of truth and art. One of the discoveries um, intellectually that I made in the course of imagining the novel was that so Slava's, Slava's grandmother dies before he can get out of her the stories that he very much wants to, just to sort of honor her experience and feel closer to her. He sort of sacrifices that opportunity to this identity project of running away from South Brooklyn and cutting everyone off and feeling like he needs to detox from them. And so he's filled with a tremendous amount of regret because he lost this chance. And then he is set free by the realization that, well, what we don't possess, we can invent. And yes, you won't end up with uh, an exact factual um, history of what the real-life person went through. Uh, but you know what? Their memories would not have provided you with that anyway, because memory is very tricky. And when you add to that the fact that the memory comes from a Holocaust survivor, it's, it's, you know, you're getting a version of the truth. Their best, perhaps, but... So anyway, there's this, um, um, Slava gets to recreate on the page um, a grandmother that he never really got to know in real life. And this is both problematic and liberating, uh, and it's an intoxicating experience for him. Um, <clears throat> in, in my case, um, I sat down both my grandmother and grandfather um, and interviewed them at length uh, about their life stories long before I had any plans for this novel, just for this very fact of um, I need to be able to tell my grandchildren about what they went through. Why? Because their lives were just so much more eventful than mine will ever be, just because of the times we live in. Um, and you know that survivors don't like to talk. And I had to trick my grandmother into talking with me. Here's a great example of that thing I was talking about earlier about um, not being able to express need directly. I would ask her to tell me her stories, and she'd say, oh, I don't want to upset you which was really a way of saying, I don't want to upset me. But she couldn't ask for that, so she had to, make, she had to repackage it as, as a service for me. So even as a teenager, I sort of had to learn to play this, this game, this speaking game, where um, I, I essentially had to con her into it. I, had, I, I told her that I, had a, I invented a school project where we had been supposedly assigned to, to sort of write up three generations of family history, and she wouldn't have dared cost me a good grade, so she caved. And that's how I started to get some of her stories. Did you have any fears at all about writing, like touching the Holocaust in any way, especially this way? The war ended 70 years ago. Uh, the very last survivors are dying out. But even though the survivors are dying out, the experience remains as horrendously fresh um, 70 years later, at least to me, as it did when it happened. But in order to speak about it, you have to invent new forms. Uh, because no one needs another uh, tear-filled reverential Holocaust novel. That thought didn't then engender the intention to create 
a kind of uh, provocative uh, novel around the Holocaust. It was more the reverse. Unless I'd come up with this idea, I probably wouldn't have written a novel about the Holocaust. But I, I really wanted to sort of desanctify the subject, um, by which I mean simply that, I mean, it is, it is, it is a fact that, that Jews, Russian-speaking Jews, have exploited the Holocaust for profit. I sort of anticipated that uh, by writing it first, but it was sort of sadly vindicated by, by the facts. And this, too, whether we like it or not, is a part of the Jewish experience. It's a, it's a part of what the Holocaust uh, leaves itself open to and deserves exploration. And also, by the way, one thing we haven't gotten to talk about is these people, however their actions are contextualized by what they went through in the Soviet Union, um, it isn't merely that they're criminals. Um, they're also people who have suffered tremendously in the course of their lives. Um, just not in the exact way that they need to have suffered in order to qualify for these reparations that were created by people very often responding to political realities. I mean, when these agreements were crafted uh, in the early 50s, um, you had to have been in the ghetto for 18 months in order to qualify. Over time, that became six months. Over time, that became three months. And so what was, legal, what was illegal yesterday is legal today, but what about all those people who died in the interim? They were, their applications were illegal yesterday, legal today, but now they're too dead to apply. What if you had three limbs blown off in the war defending your country against German invasion? Um, you're not eligible to apply. But if you spend three months in the ghetto laying bricks, you are eligible to apply. I mean, it's, the, the, these, are, these are somewhat these, these agreements were not created by God. They were created by human beings. And so there are these people who've been screwed for the entirety of their lives, feeling like, well, who made you God? I got my own thoughts about what's valid here. So... I mean it to be a morally complex situation where people like grand, the grandfather character um, have quite a persuasive argument about why it is absolutely the right thing to do um, to apply for restitution um, illegally. Closing the book, I can't imagine that you would say that here is someone who, who thinks lightly of the Holocaust or makes light of the Holocaust or is not um, clear-eyed about... I mean, there is no superlative to convey uh, the monstrosity of it. I mean, it's why I wrote a whole novel about it. It just, as I said, it, it remains as horrendously fresh in my mind as I, as I feel like it was when it, when it had just happened. At the same time, um, there is no room for blind reverence and, and sanctimony in fiction. I mean, fiction is, is, exists for, for exactly the opposite reason. And I've been really gratified to find very... I mean, I speak to Jewish audiences very frequently... It is, it is, for obvious reasons, a book of interest to the Jewish community, and it's been, it's been embraced by the Jewish community. I've never had to deal with someone saying, how dare you? You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Boris Fishman, author of the novel A Replacement Life. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? This is Joseph Brodsky, who is the great Soviet-slash-American poet. And it's from an essay collection, um, and it's a paragraph about exile that I would like to read. A writer in exile is, by and large, a retrospective and retroactive being. He will stick in his writing to the familiar material of the past, producing, as it were, sequels to his previous works. Approached on this subject, an exiled writer will most likely evoke Ovid's Rome, Dante's Florence, and after a small pause, Joyce's Dublin, 
Exile, after all, is a kind of success. Why not push the good old stuff around a little bit more? Apart from anything else, it now constitutes ethnographic material. And that goes big with your Western publisher. Retrospective machinery that gets unwittingly triggered within an individual by the least evidence of his surroundings strangeness. Sometimes the shape of a maple leaf is enough, and each tree has thousands of these. Exile slows down one's stylistic evolution. It makes a writer more conservative. Style is not so much the man as the man's nerves, and on the whole, exile provides one's nerves with fewer irritants than the motherland does. This is simply one man's reactions to finding many an exiled author, Russian ones in the first place, on the banal side of virtue. If we want to play a bigger role, the role of a free man, then we should be capable of accepting, or at least imitating, the manner in which a free man fails. A free man, when he fails, blames nobody. I love this paragraph because it actually reminds me of uh, another great line that he has. He says, if you must rebel, rebel against those who are not so easily hurt. Parents are too close a target. The range is such that you can't miss. I mean... Brodsky, apart from everything else he is, is the great poet of personal responsibility. Um, and part of the reason I love that paragraph about exile is because exile is endlessly rich as a subject, and it's also very exotic to uh, an American audience, uh, the majority of whom have not had that experience. But their forefathers did, because this is a country of immigrants. So it's doubly compelling. The problem is that it does become a crutch. Can you read a short passage from something you wrote? It could have been something you found hard or something that changed from the first draft or something you feel you succeeded at. I, I did 12 drafts of A Replacement Life. Um, and so this question uh, took me back to some of the very first drafts that I did. If you allow me, I'd like to read you the first paragraph or two of the novel that was published and then to read you the first paragraph or two of draft number one. Because I feel like I had this professor in college who said um, her, her, her mantra was fetishize beginnings. So much depends on how you open. And so I feel like I rewrote the opening about 500 times. If I rewrote the whole thing 12 times, I rewrote the opening 500 times. So this is, um, <clears throat> this is the published novel. The telephone rang just after five. Unconscionably, the day was already preparing to begin a dark blue lengthening across the sky. Hadn't the night only started? Slava's head said so. But in the cobalt square of the window, the sun was looking for a way up, the great towers of the Upper East Side ready for gilding. Who was misdialing at five o'clock in the morning on Sunday? Slava's landline never rang. Even telemarketers had given up on him, you have to admit, an achievement. His family no longer called because he had forbidden it. His studio, miraculously affordable even for a junior employee of a midtown magazine, rang with echoes. Nothing but a futon, a writing desk, a lamp wrapped in cast iron vines, forced on him by his grandfather, and a tube television he never turned on. Once in a while, he imagined vanishing into the walls like a spirit in Poe and chuckled bitterly. And then this is what it was after the first draft. It all happened so briefly. From start to finish, it took one month and several days, no more, and was preceded for Slava Gelman by such an eventless routine at the famous magazine where he worked that it's quite possible to imagine it never having happened at all. At the apex of his leap, 
Even the trampoline jumper thinks he can fly. For moments at a time, Slava Gelman, a.k.a. Sam Gelman, a.k.a. Sam Gellum, a.k.a. Vyacheslav Gelman, our shapeshifter really does belong on an FBI rap sheet, doesn't he? Can work the polyp of that aberrant month into the smooth skin of uneventful routine. But then the facts take over. It happened. In this country, an adopted country for Slava, the study of what-if history has approximately the respect of white hoods in front of black homes. If one wants to imagine, as a professional duty, how World War II might have turned had Klaus von Stauffenberg and his mutineers gotten to Hitler in 1944. If the Austrian Archduke had not come to Sarajevo that morning in 1914. If the Americans had chosen to see Tonkin for what it really was. One is seen as some kind of crank. The cause of his crankdom being reality itself. It's boorish to mess with the facts. So you see, it's a completely different narrative that to me is at once um, way more hardworking and elaborate and also way less good. Like it's just trying so much harder, um, that original, whereas the, the published version feels to me much more sober and controlled in the way that you want fiction to be. Where do you write? I write at the desk where I'm sitting right now which is an enormous wooden desk uh, that I bought used. Uh, it's an old, scuffed uh, wooden desk with iron supports. And as soon as I saw it, I wanted it so badly that I didn't even bother to measure the width of my door. And it turned out the desk was too wide for the, uh, for the opening. And the door had to be taken off its hinges, and then just by a hair it managed to get its, its, it make its way in. Somehow that's symbolic, all of those things for me. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? You know, to be honest, I don't know that I ever want to unless um, I'm in a period like the one I'm in right now where I'm focused on publicity. I've finished my second novel, so I'm not working on anything currently. At some point along the way, I think when I started my MFA program, which, which was essential to getting me serious and disciplined and structured about writing, I came up with, with uh, a sort of uh, a plan for uh, a well-lived day that I have never been able to nor wanted to shake. And so now it's been placed for about seven years. And that day begins with reading, uh, goes on to writing, uh, goes on to whatever the other work of the day is, the, erc- the work that actually would actually get, get me income when I was working on, on the novel and then exercise, and then sort of because I'm actually not the kind of person who loves being alone uh, by himself all day, some kind of social activity in the evening. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? A dear friend from my MFA program, she and I write completely different fiction, completely, but for some reason she's just really plugged in into the things that I try to do. Um, And so she is definitely one of the first destinations for uh, when I've completed something. How have you dealt with rejection? It's really important for me to convey to anyone who's interested in writing how much no this book heard before it heard yes. I mean, look, uh, luck comes to the prepared, and I think that draft 12 of this novel is uncountably better than draft one. Half the game is just staying in it. All right, and what is your favorite word? I'm really drawn to the word cathedral. Uh, and in fact, there's some wordplay um, connected to it in the novel. Uh, there's something so utterly dignified about it. 
Of course, I feel that way partly because of what it means. It refers to such a uh, solemn, dignified kind of structure. Uh, but the word itself, I feel like it has its own spires, the T, the H, the D, the L. Um, there's something about it that sort of rolls off the tongue. So it, it basically, um, the word sounds like what it is and somehow places me in a contemplative mood. But I know that's being inflected by what it refers to. All the same, it's kind of a word that I love that I don't really get to use that often because how often are we referring to cathedrals? But there you go. <laughs> You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Boris Fishman, author of the novel A Replacement Life. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.